This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. From Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, I'm Stephanie Longmuir and you're on Dying to Tell, a podcast series where we explore end of life and death in a frank and honest way. As Parliament resumes, the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill will be up for debate. We will talk with Fiona Patton about the process of the parliamentary inquiry and the final report delivered in July. We're going to ask Dr Marion Harris why she and a hundred other oncologists are opposed to the bill and we'll hear the personal stories of those with terminal illness and what it means to them through Go Gentle advocate Stacey Halls. That's coming up on Dying to Tell. So in putting together this series, my producer Gina and I have interviewed some really interesting people, um, politicians, advocates, doctors, morticians, funeral directors, death doulas, carers, lawyers, um, and that's just the first three episodes. For me, these conversations aren't new. Uh, Every day in my work uh, in the funeral profession, I hear end-of-life stories, and then I help families prepare for the future. I really have no discomfort in these conversations, but Gina, for you, how have you found these past few months talking about death and palliative care and funerals and advanced care wishes and, and all the other stuff that we have um, covered? To be honest, Steph, I, when we first kind of talked about this topic and it, and it came up because you were telling me about a funeral you were supporting for an older person of, of a similar ethnic background to myself. You know, the way you kind of describe this person's end of life is something I've always feared for my, the things that impact my cultural background and religion. You know, I'm Greek Orthodox. And the conversation we had, which then led to this podcast series, I, to be honest, I thought we were going to be a little bit morbid. I thought this was going to be a bit creepy, you know, fears of, oh my God, we're going to be talking about some really icky stuff. Soon passed, and I think one of the first interviews we had was with a death doula. And my goodness, I never realised that talking about death could actually bring about some of the most positive and inspiring and life-affirming conversations. A conversation I thought would be really depressing. It highlights the things that we take for granted in life, and we shouldn't have to wait for bad things to happen for us to re-examine them. This is, it's actually been quite a luscious, who would have thunk it? I didn't. I certainly didn't. Well, Gina, I'm glad that you share that because um, I feel the same way about my work. You know, people often say to me, oh, it must be so sad. You know, I don't know how you do the job yeah, you do. Yeah, why don't you do mar- weddings because wedding? they're uplifting? And, and, <laughs> but do you know what? It just gives me a heightened sense of gratitude, my work, because mm. every day I realise how lucky I am, you know, to be alive, to have the people I have around me. And I just, I really don't take a lot for granted. I'm, 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 pretty, I'm, I'm a pretty grateful person. And I've learned from yourself and the other guests that, you know, People say to you, why don't you do weddings? It's a celebration. But what you do is celebrate somebody's life. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. It is. That's it, phenomenal. It's a, great, it's a great, um, great job. But anyway, coming back to this, our very <laughs> first episode of Dying to Tell, we are diving into a discussion that either polarises people or it's something that they won't talk about, um, at least on the record. We're going to be talking about voluntary assisted dying and specifically the bill that has been tabled in the Victorian State Parliament. You're going to hear both sides of the discussion from people who are not only willing to talk about this bill, but who have a sound understanding of what it means from their different perspectives. I would, however, um, encourage everyone to take a look at the discussion paper for the bill, and I'm going to post that link on our socials. So let's get started and we're going to begin with an interview with Fiona Patton, Victoria Member of Parliament and current leader of the Reason Party, as I think that she does a pretty good job at explaining the background of the proposed changes. If you're dying to know, then Steph and Gina are dying to tell. On Joy 94.9. To continue our discussion on voluntary assisted dying, I welcome Fiona Patton, Victoria Member of Parliament and current leader of the Reason Party, formerly the Sex Party, to join 94.9. Welcome, Fiona, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Steph. Fiona, you were at the coalface for change in euthanasia laws. Can you explain why you initiated the inquiry into end-of-life choices and why you felt so invested in this discussion? Mm. It it was an interesting path for me, and I, I 
I, both my parents um, died before I entered Parliament, but neither of them died a bad death. Particularly, they both died quite quite suddenly. So, it wasn't that personal experience, but it was um, it was becoming friends with a man called Peter Short, who was an incredible campaigner for the uh, for dying with dignity and the option and the 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 arguments for having a choice at end of life. So Peter, um, Peter was kind of with me throughout the 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 last months of of our campaign, and I certainly made a commitment to him that this would be one of the first things that I did if I was elected into Parliament. Now Peter didn't get to see that because he died in of Christmas two thousand and fourteen, but he saw me make that commitment, and he saw me. Um, well, he didn't see me put it on the notice paper, but he certainly heard me promise to do that. And I did. And I think for a party that um, was formed under a mandate of civil liberties and a platform of civil liberties, having greater autonomy and choice over how we die uh, is an important part of that. Mm, absolutely. I'd like to talk about the work and the time that goes into changing laws, as, mm. as I actually don't think that this is properly understood. Can you perhaps explain the process of a parliamentary inquiry? So the parliamentary inquiry was launched in yes. December 2016. What happens next? So, the, I mean, we shouldn't forget the work of that committee because that committee uh, really met and discussed this issue for well over 12 months. We received uh, a, a lot more than a thousand, probably around 1,200 submissions. We held dozens of public hearings in Melbourne and in regional areas of Victoria. Uh, we travelled overseas to speak to the opponents and the proponents of legislation in other jurisdictions. So, I mean, I was very privileged to be part of that process, but that is that is a significant process and it's a significant uh, process in understanding where the community is sitting and where the experts are sitting and for us to investigate the evidence around what what is happening in other jurisdictions that had physician-assisted dying. So once that report was tabled, the government then officially has six months to respond to a parliamentary committee inquiry such as that one. And this was quite a groundbreaking uh, inquiry. There was not there was not similar inquiries around Australia. So this was fairly uncharted territory. And what was amazing was that eight members of parliament could do this in, gen in for the most part, a fairly consensual uh, manner. Um, Could I just ask you there, just with mm. regard to the experts, who was on the ministerial advisory panel? Well, that was what I was getting to. So after the committee tabled its report, one of the things it recommended was to work out regulations around this legislation that there needed to be an expert panel. So on the expert panel, we had um, senior palliative care academics and doctors and nurses and uh, disability advocates, a whole range of people who had an incredibly broad and deep knowledge around end-of-life care and the issues uh, that are raised at that point in someone's life. So this was a, an incredibly um, important panel. They then went out to the experts. So they went out and spoke to oncologists, to doctors, to nurses, to church groups, to the whole range of stakeholders who had an interest in this. And they ran forums with, with those organisations and with those groups and with those individuals to get a better idea of what the community expected from this legislation. There was no doubt that there would be legislation. It was just what it was going to look like and what sort of safeguards would be developed within it. So what did they discover? What were some of the relevant policy and legal issues that the panel needed to consider? I think, you know, it was... People were very concerned around safeguards. People were very concerned that this legislation could be abused in one way or another, that, that people who did not want to end their lives would be coerced into doing so or would feel that they were a burden uh, on their families or on society and feel the need to do to end life. Um, so there was 
it was that concern around the safeguards. I don't think anyone really disputed. Well, most people did not dispute that there are some people that no amount of palliative care can end their suffering and that those people have um, quite awful deaths and, and the families that are around them, uh, it is just heartbreaking and wrenching to watch someone um, in their last days or weeks of life uh, without any relief. And I think that that's something that is misunderstood about, you know, during this discussion, people don't realise that it is just such a small percentage of people that that are going to be affected by changes in these laws. That's right. So if you look at um, at Oregon, which is what the legislation is large was largely modelled on their model on their system. And I'm interested in that because with you know euthanasia laws passed in the Netherlands and Belgium, why did the panel look to Oregon and their death with dignity law? I think it was. Um, I mean, it was it was so interesting because we did go. We went to Switzerland. We got a great understanding of of their system for assisted suicide. We got a very good understanding of the Netherlands um, uh, Netherlands legislation and regulation. And you know, I I must say, I think probably the Netherlands has the most compassionate um, and sensible legislation. But it wouldn't have fit. For Australia, and why? It why? What, what, what was it, wrong with? <coughs> well, there was just something. There's some things like this was really a G. It was the GP patient relationship. It wasn't the oncologist person relationship. And in the Netherlands, most people had the same GP for, for decades. So that that relationship was so strong, and it's such a de- it's it's such a small and dense country that that relationship was easily um, maintained. Uh, where in Australia, we we are such a transient uh, population. We move a lot. Um, we don't keep the same doctor throughout our lives. Oh, some of us some of us are fortunate to do that, but a large number of us don't, don't have that doctor-patient relationship. So that was one thing. I think in, in the Netherlands, they had a... Um, they're such a pragmatic community and such a pragmatic society that they had a very different view around death and dying that um, we don't have in Australia even though I mean the, the Dutch are very are a very religious uh, society uh, they have a very different view to end of life so we found that Oregon uh, being probably more more Western uh, was possibly uh, was more in line with the with we thought the um, the society that we live in today in Victoria, and it's a very robust model that only applies to a very small cohort of people, and that legislation has been in place for uh, nearly for seventeen, eighteen years. It has never changed. It has never been challenged, and there has never been a court case emerging from it. So we thought. If there's never been someone sued under under legislation like that, it must be pretty robust, and and I think it is. Unfortunately, it won't help everyone at the end of life. Can we just go back to the discussion about doctors? And I'm I'm interested mm. in this because I had a conversation on Saturday with it with a group of women about about this, and and one of the topics raised was this issue around doctors who. Under the the um, recommendations, doctors can opt in and out of this, can't yes. they? So, um, for the doc- doctors that choose to um, go with the legislation, do you think that there's going to be any stigma that will be attached to these doctors? I, I honestly don't think so, because I think when you look at where the community sits on this subject, the community is overwhelmingly in favour of providing greater choice at the end of at, at end of life. So I, I think the community is, is ready for this. I think the vast majority of doctors are ready for this. Uh, so no, I don't think so. What I am concerned about is in regional areas where uh, there, there may not be a large number of doctors. So if a doctor in a regional area is to opt out of the system, um, how does that affect the community? But those are going to be issues that that we will have to face, um, and we face them today. I mean, in some ways, you know, we we 
regional areas um, do do lack some of the immediate care that that we in the city have access to. From the Parliamentary Committee's inquiry into end-of-life choices in December 2016, there was a final report, as I just mentioned, Mm. with 66 recommendations delivered in July. Premier Andrews accepted the totality of the report. Is it unusual for a Premier to accept all of the recommendations and, and so quickly? Well, I don't think he did it terribly quickly. Um, he did it within, within the, the time period that he, he is allowed. The, for the most part, we, we saw this was called end-of-life choices inquiry and the terms of reference were very broad. It was not just looking at physician-assisted dying. It was looking at um, decision-making around end-of-life. It was looking at palliative care services. It was looking at access to those services, the adequacy of those services. So this was a very broad um, inquiry. I think for the most part it actually focused on... um, it, you know, end of life directives, being able to to make certain uh, to be able to make certain decisions about your care um, in advance. So, advanced care directives, uh, who should have um, you know sort of power of attorney, those sorts of things. So, it was really teasing out a lot of those issues, as well as teasing out where we are with palliative care and how we can improve it. So, for, I, so a lot of the recommendations were not difficult. But for, for for the Premier to be brave to accept all of them, I think was um, was very thoughtful and I think uh, and was was he was quite correct because that is what the community wants. The community wants those those choices at end of life. So I was very pleased that the Premier um, was willing to accept that the community had reached this point and the community was mature enough to have, these types of conversations because, frankly, that was the thing that really uh, shone out in our investigation is our inability to talk about death. Mm, Interesting, isn't it? Um, Fiona, do you have any criticism of the final report? Um, Look, in some ways I I think that we have made it very narrow um, and that there will be many people who will be very... Um, disappoint will be disappointed with where we have fallen, um, and, and I have incredible sympathy f- for those people who are suffering enormously, and this legislation will not help them. However, this legislation, I hope, will actually get the support of the majority of members of Parliament and will pass. So we will be able to help a lot of people, just not everyone. So I don't have a great deal. I, that would be my only criticism. But in the end, I'm, I'm very proud to have been part of, proud and honoured to have been part of the process. Uh, I do think that we need to have more conversations around death and dying. You know, you talk, talk, talk to doctors, they get trained on how to have, how to give um, birth to a baby or how to, you know, to, to deliver a baby. Uh, they don't really get taught on how to have conversations about end of life. Yet, they're far more likely to have a patient who's dying than have a patient who's who's giving birth that they will have to deliver. <laughs> um, I was interested to read um, some of the comments from Professor Brian Aller, who was the chair mm. of the advisory panel um, and former president of the Australian Medical Association. He described the proposed laws as conservative and distinctly Victorian. Yes. What do, what do you think he means by that? I, 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 I didn't quite understand that. <laughs> I, look, I think it's, um, it's a really interesting thing. Victoria is, quite a, prog- is a progressive state and we, we have gone first in 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 many areas and um you know from my own knowledge i mean i certainly can look back at our victorian prostitution laws which we introduced in 1986 first jurisdiction in the world to do something like that now ours are probably the most conservative in the world because we went first and we will not change and i think um we've been having this conversation about the victorian laws we will go first and they will be very conservative laws and we will never change them and everybody who goes after us will be braver. 
And it's we'll like be being able the first child, something. isn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. We have, <laughs> and it is, it, it, it's, it is. It is a responsibility to bear and it is a very important responsibility to bear. And I think we have been, we have taken that responsibility because we will not be the last jurisdiction that goes down this path. And we can already see Tasmania, New South Wales, South Australia, the ACT, all looking with interest at what Victoria does, how Victorian we are about it. But I think this has been a wonderful process that we've had a full community and public debate about it through the committee parliamentary committee process. We've now had an expert panel again doing very broad consultation. Alongside that, we've had the Department of Health also do, undertaking their own um, redevelopment of advanced care directives and palliative care services. And we've seen substantial investment going into improving palliative care and providing a greater understanding for people about what palliative care is, that it's actually not about, uh, you know, sort of, it's not about dying, it's about end of life, which can be a long time. And so many people are reluctant to take palliative care because they think they're giving up. That's right. We've had this discussion. Exactly, which is about, it's actually about living well. It's about living well till the end. Um, and and palliative care often prolongs life. You oh, know, this is the thing that people don't understand. It's not giving up and saying, "Well, that's the end." It, it you know, no, it enhances and prolongs. It, it enhances your life, and it yeah. can be simple things like just when people understand that they can access palliative care, it means that they can stay at home so much longer. It means that they can be comfortable, that they can still, um, you know, socialize and still work or still be, you know, still be um, take part in lots of family events and things like. Like that, um, yes, as you say, it prolongs life and it just it improves, our, it improves our quality of life. So I was interested, Fiona, to um, read that Palliative Care Victoria is one of the organisations that have declared it will oppose euthanasia laws, saying saying that it will lead to a growing sense of duty to die. H- how would you respond to their concerns? The ev- the evidence does not show us this. In fact. What we have found is that palliative care actually improves. So when people can have that conversation, and and we ask it, many of us um, are, are scared at the end of life. We're scared that we've we've seen loved ones die in most miserable circumstances, and we're scared that that's going to happen to us. So um, having uh, this legislation enables us to have those conversations. And what we saw overseas was it did not bear out that anyone felt that they needed to die. Quite the opposite. It meant that they could live knowing that when the time was right for them, they could make that choice. And what that meant in, I mean, in uh, in, in Oregon, for example, we're you know, it's it's only a handful of people who die in Oregon, Oregon who actually, A, get the prescription, but then use it. So well over a third of people who are given the prescription uh, even use it. But having it on the shelf or having it there gives them great comfort at the end of their life. And what we heard is it actually enables them to go on a bit longer uh, because they know that uh, when they are ready that they can make that decision. And I... I think it was it actually created exactly what we wanted to far greater dignity in dying and far greater choice making and I do, it does not diminish palliative care at all in fact it is just part of a toolbox of end of life um tools and and opportunities that we can use while um premier daniel andrews most of his ministers your party and the greens are in favor of reform what sort of progress do you think we can expect on um, legislation, Fiona? This is going to be a very um, difficult and I hope respectful debate. Uh, it's it's not very often that the major parties uh, give give their members a conscience vote. Uh, in fact, it, it probably only happens one or two times in a term, if, if that. So this this is always difficult for, for MPs who've, generally been told how to vote for mm. for their entire careers. Uh, so it's, it is, um, 
I think at the moment it's we are providing lots of information and there's been lots of great discussions um, with people like, like Professor Aula who's been coming in to explain the process that he undertook, the people that he spoke. But also we've heard from Palliative Care Victoria. We've heard from some of the opponents who've, who've come out from overseas to speak about um, their their fears and concerns for it. So we've been hearing from both sides. I just... I, this will be a long debate, and we will. We know that lots of people will want to speak about this. I hope people are speaking to their communities. I hope people are reading the report and getting a great understanding of actually how we came to this position because this we didn't come to this position lightly, and we came to it as a result of evidence and expert evidence. So we came to it uh, from you know, listening to palliative doctors and palliative um, and palliative care nurses. I think Palliative Care Victoria, uh, it's, it, they, I think it's a philosophical area and it's, it's an area that um, has concerned me over for, for a number of years and, and continues to concern me is the, um, that so many of our services that we provide, health services, are, are now provided by religious institutions and I know at Joy we've talked about the um, exemptions to discrimination legislation that these institutions have, and I think it's something that we, while I you know these many of these institutions provide absolutely brilliant care and support in aged care, in healthcare, in homelessness, and in a whole range of areas, we also have to be very conscious um, of the. Um, the fact that they can discriminate against someone on the grounds of their sexuality, that they can refuse to provide service to someone on for a variety of reasons, and they can pr- refuse to provide certain services. So palliative care represents a lot of those organisations, and I think we have to bear that in mind when we, when we look at Palliative Care Victoria's decisions. We certainly heard from a lot of palliative nurses and a lot of people at the coalface who welcome this legislation. It'll be interesting to see how things unfold in the next few months. Fiona Patton, thank you for joining us on Joy today. Thanks, Stephanie. I guess nobody is surprised that there has been staunch opposition to this bill from religious groups. But I was a little surprised to learn that 101 oncologists had signed a letter of opposition that was sent to their Victorian parliamentary representatives. Coming up, Dr Marion Harris will discuss this letter and why she and her colleagues are against the proposed Victorian Assisted Dying Bill. Joining me in the studio, I have Dr. Marion Harris. Marion, you're listed as the contact person for this letter. What was your involvement um, in putting together the list of 101 Victorian oncologists? And perhaps you can start by giving some background on the events that led to this letter. Well, look, I suppose um, I really thought about this whole assisted dying issue when the legislation in South Australia a few months ago was... Um, the legislation of assisted dying was rejected by one vote and I suppose that made me realise how close South Australia came to having an assisted dying law and made me really think that this is something that really could come to our state and made me really sit up and think, is this a good thing or not? And I came to the conclusion that it was not and made me motivated to actually do something rather than just think about it. So hence the idea of just writing a letter uh, which is what I did, and passed it round a number of oncologist colleagues and got 100 of them to uh, sign that they also um, support, uh, did not support um, the concept of having an assisted dying law for our state. The 101 oncologists on this list are from a whole range of hospitals, health services mm-hmm. and, and cancer centres. They signed the statement as individuals, not as representatives of any hospital or other organisation. Do you know if doctors or specialist doctors from hospitals linked to religious organisations experience other pressures in this discussion? Look, I don't know for sure, but um, naturally in every hospital and every workplace, there's people with a range of views on this, and sometimes the views are very strongly held both for and against. Um, in a hospital that is, has a religious affiliation, I can surmise that strong expressions in support of the legislation wouldn't be appreciated. But I think it's fair to say I'm in a non-religious hospital and 
they are very keen to um, make sure that both sides of the debate are uh, given airspace and time. And so I think there's a fairly strong feeling that not to promote one side against the other. So, for example, in my hospital, they weren't supportive of me circulating the letter to you know, all my colleagues in the hospital using the hospital email address. So um, it's not a religious hospital and I was of the anti-view, but they, they didn't want that put ahead because they perceived that to be showing that the hospital was biased one way, whereas they wanted to keep a neutrality. Can you explain the main concerns that you and your colleagues have with the proposed bill? So, look, I suppose clumping euthanasia and assisted dying together, to me, there's two issues. There's one, there's the whole ethical issue about euthanasia, and then there's the specifics of the legislation. So, to me, um, human life has always been, you know, um, inviolable, that you must not kill someone or assist someone to kill themselves. And this legislation crosses that line or says, in some circumstances, that law doesn't, you know, doesn't apply, and in fact, the criminal law would would be changed. So, I suppose I feel that with appropriate specialist palliative care, especially now in you know 2017, we can do so much better. So, my view is that in almost every situation, uh, when someone is at towards the end of life, whether it's a neurological illness or cancer illness, they can be looked after. Um, and so hence the rejection of the idea that someone should need to, to, to end their life, uh, especially in the setting of, of a terminal illness. Um, and people say it's just their individual choice, but I'm arguing it's actually not just about that individual. That individual has a family, has grandchildren, has their community, society, implications to sort of medical practitioners. And it has been portrayed that some desperate people you know, take their own lives. And that's terribly tragic and upsetting. But I think that needs to be viewed in the broader context of society where 95% of suicides, you know, have nothing to do with the terminal illness. And, you know, to try and prevent it in some and actually provide the means to others is, is wrong. So doing, um, providing assisted dying is only going to stop a small fraction of the total number of, of suicides. And also doctors, you know, we train to heal, we take an oath. It's not something that we really want to do. And in fact, there's some data that's unpublished that suggests that only about 10 or 15% of doctors would actually give a lethal injection and only 20% would actually write a script. So just moving on to the legislation, even for people who disagree with us and think euthanasia as a concept is great, there are practical concerns with the legislation. So in Victoria people that are going to do it don't have to see a psychiatrist beforehand and we think that's a terrible thing and sufficient to reject the legislation in itself because people might have decision-making capacity i.e. they're not demented but depression is very common in people with end-of-life issues and it actually impairs your judgment it's like you're wearing a pair of glasses that are black so everything's black everything's negative there's nothing good to be had. So it's going to influence the decisions they make. And that can really only be detected, in our view, by a specialist psychiatrist. You can look at someone and they look normal, but they can actually be very depressed and they can make decisions. They can put their clothes on and go to work. But when it comes to making an irreversible, enduring decision, like taking your life, you know, they're impaired. People don't have to see a palliative care specialist it's one thing to be told by another doctor you know there's palliative care and it's usually not pain um, to me it's more about having a trust or belief a confidence in the system that they're going to look after you whatever your issue is whether it's you can't swallow or you can't breathe so perhaps it's only through really meeting a palliative care specialist and actually having their their treatment and them inspiring you that the confidence that 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 your needs can be met um, the one-year life expectancy is, is, is far too long. In Oregon, it's only six months. So many things can change, you know, in that one-year time period. Um, it's impossible for doctors to really know a prognosis. It's always an educated guess. With this legislation, there's no need to notify the treating doctor. So the patient can just go and see 
uh, a couple of euthanasia doctors get the script and then once those obligations, you know, the practitioner has met their obligations and given them the script, there's really no follow-up. And those patients go off with a loaded gun or this lethal script and, you know, their treating doctors don't necessarily know, their families may not know, um, the idea that the two doctors, one of them is supposed to be a specialist in the area. But, for example, for a cancer patient, you know, is an orthopaedic surgeon who who believes in euthanasia, is that really a specialist? I mean, he operates on patients' bones, but he doesn't know um, the details of prognosis and new cancer therapy. So this is all undefined in the legislation. I mean, even the black box, who's going to check that there is it? Uh, sorry, not a black box, a locked box, who who even suggests. And, and in the legislation, there's no observation or involvement of anyone at the time the patient actually administers the uh, lethal substance. So who would know if, if someone could put it in in the intended person's you know, orange juice and they have it before, or if I'm not suggesting they'd be physically forced to drink it, but encouraged, come on, mum, you know, you're not well... We can't look after you anymore. No, no one's actually there at the actual administration. So they're all some of the concerns. To, to my view, euthanasia is like a leaking bucket. Um, and all these alleged safeguards are really just trying to plug the hole, but it's a flawed concept and ultimately the water's going to start leaking. So that, that's my view. Are there any changes you think that could be made to the current bill that would encourage you and your colleagues to rethink your opposition? Well, look, I don't think totally because I think, um, as I said, I think it's a bit of a, a leaking bucket. But some of those changes, you know, addressing them, you know, adding the psychiatrist, adding the palliative care specialist, changing one year to six months, I think it could certainly be improved okay. in many respects. Um, defining what a specialist has to be, mandating that there has to be observation of the individual when they actually take the lethal substance rather than them just being at home, you know, this idea that you give them the lethal substance and they just disappear. There's no follow-up or obligation. So I just feel instead of helping people, supporting people, having people develop confidence that palliative care is there for them, um, instead we just give them a substance and say, go and take your own life because that's the best we can do. And, and that to me is really not good enough. Brian, Professor Brian Aller has described the proposed laws as conservative. How would you and your colleagues describe them? So, look, most countries in the world do not have euthanasia. So I would argue that anyone having a euthanasia program, you know, the half or dozen so out of the 190 or so countries in the world, it's already radical. Um, in the, the countries in the world that have the most liberal euthanasia programs are Holland and Belgium, where you don't have to have a terminal illness. You just have to have intolerable suffering, that two doctors agree that that you meet that criterion of the intolerable suffering. By contrast, in Oregon and more recently Canada, where it's been legalised, you do have to have a terminal illness and the life expectancy is less than six months. So they also do not permit euthanasia. It has to be the patient taking the medication. So we would argue that the Victorian legislation, in fact, isn't really conservative. It's just not as radical as the most two radical countries in the world, i.e. Holland and Belgium. And it's not as conservative as Canada because the life expectancy is longer at 12 months and it actually allows euthanasia, the idea the doctor actually gives the lethal injection, which is not at all permitted um, in Oregon. Dr Harris, I have one final question for you. Um, I really understand your position on this bill as a doctor. But as a patient, if you were suffering unmanageable or untreatable pain, would you like to know that there are other options? Well, look, I would say, just to clarify, it's really not a pain issue. All the data suggests that some of the most common complaints that, that, that people, the indications people list for using euthanasia are pains down the bottom at about 10%. So I would argue that we can control pain even if it requires uh, you know, terminal sedation, which means someone's in pain and they're distressed and they're dying to actually you know, put them out so that they're effectively unconscious. So pain can be controlled. So I'd reassure people pain can be controlled. The bigger concerns are things like loss of function, loss of quality uh, of life. But these are the concerns that people list, you know, why they take uh, euthanasia. 
Marion, thank you so much for joining us today on Joy 94.9. Thank you very much. I don't think anyone really knows what they'll need at the end of their life. Before we go to our final interview, let's meet Jen Barnes, a Victorian nurse dying from an aggressive form of brain cancer as she faces her mortality. I've been a nurse for 40 years and uh, I have seen many people die over that time and some of them have not had good deaths. I now find myself in a position where I have a terminal illness, brain cancer. Control of my destiny. Anybody that knows me knows that I wouldn't want it any other way. At this point in time, I feel that I'll go on forever, but I know that that won't happen. And so you go for an MRI and you wait to find out, is everything still stable? I know that at some point in time, they're not going to be able to help me and they'll say, no, we can't operate, we can't give you treatments anymore, and this is the beginning of the end. I would like our politicians to look at the 70% of the population that feel that an assistant dying law would be appropriate in the state of Victoria. It's important for politicians to be there for their community because they're not there just representing themselves. Nobody wants to die because we all want to see the next grandchild, the the next birthday, the, the, the trees bloom or whatever. We all want that. It just doesn't seem for those few people that can't cope. We're not giving them the dignity in death that they're entitled to and I would like to think that I was entitled to. That clip, as I mentioned, is um, from the Go Gentle website. I'll post a link to the site as there are a number of personal stories from both families and individuals who are facing or have faced terminal illness. Our final interview is with Stacey Halls, the Electorate Coordinator at Go Gentle Australia. Go Gentle are an organisation created back in 2016 to spark national conversation about voluntary euthanasia laws. Stacey has spent the vast majority of her career in the voluntary sector, uh, promoting equality, influencing positive change and developing effective community engagement to create inclusive services for marginalised communities. Let's hear what Stacey has to say. So before we talk about your current role with Go Gentle, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your previous roles as I wonder if they have provided stepping stones to where you find yourself now. And I thought we would begin with your role in the UK dedicated to supporting and campaigning for older LGBTI people. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what this involved and some of your successes in that role? Sure. Um, I worked for um, what started as quite a small project that was part of a local Age UK organisation. Um, and over the six years I worked there, it developed into a charity in its own right. So essentially it was set up to try and reduce isolation that were felt by older members of the community um, and increasingly the needs of older LGBTQI people in London were certainly not being met by a vast range of statutory services. Um, So it developed more than the social groups and the befriending service into a genuine campaigning group with members of the older LGBT community being at the forefront of campaigning. So they were really looking at how to improve health and social care services that would better meet their needs, understand their lived experiences, um, so that they weren't being forced at the later stages of their lives of being pushed back into the closet. Mm. Um, And the kind of greatest successes we had, um, certainly from my perspective, was working with what we called our service user ambassadors, many of whom had campaigned for decades and successfully won a lot of the protections and legislation changes that I certainly benefited from as a younger member of the community. Mm. Um, But they were finding that as they were becoming a bit more reliant on formal care services, they were at the forefront of being recipients of discrimination once again and were having to push back to make sure that healthcare providers and personal carers and people coming into their homes were better equipped to understand who they were 
meet their needs. So is it just healthcare or what are some of the other challenges that older LGBTI people face that are unique to them? Uh, I think really with ageing itself they're certainly going to have a lot of the same uh, issues around health and housing and mobility as their heterosexual peers but the differences come largely from having lived very different lives, having very different social and support and family networks around them and living in a world that is overwhelmingly heteronormative. So if they're living in a, their own home with their own partner for a number of years and then they're going into a more communal living arrangement, they're suddenly in a situation where their sexual orientation or their gender identity once again becomes a huge issue, not just for staff and people who are supposed to be there to provide support and care, but from a whole cohort of older heterosexual people who will pass judgment and will be actually quite verbal in their homophobia and transphobia. What sort of insight and experience um, did your most recent role with Compassion in Dying, which is a national charity in the UK working to inform and empower people around end-of-life care, give you? Really that people fundamentally want choice. I mean, the kind of backbone of everything and the kind of thread, the theme that's run through most of the work I've ever engaged in is working with people to understand what their rights and choices are and provide a platform for them to exercise their choices to be autonomous adults. And there is this huge assumption that the subject of death and dying is the ultimate taboo. That's certainly a subject that comes up or an assumption that comes up in the UK and I've heard it here in, in Melbourne as well. But actually if you give people the right time and the right space and the right platform to have these conversations, they're very clear about what they do and don't want at the end of life. In June this year, you moved from London to Melbourne. Um, how did you become involved with Go Gentle? And can you tell me a little, about, little bit about the organisation and why it was established and what it aims to do? Um, so my involvement, the Compassion in Dying in London is the sister charity of Dignity in Dying, which is the campaigning organisation in the UK that is campaigning for a change in the law uh, in the UK government. So I had links with Go Gentle and explored those when I knew that I'd be uh, moving over here with my partner. So uh, Go Gentle Australia was established by um, Andrew Denton, who had spent he spent the best part of the last three years um, speaking with a vast cross-section of people, and he had an incredible podcast series that I listened to. Um, it was incredible people, very brave, sharing their personal experiences. Um, and I think what really appeals to me about uh, the organisation is that clearly we are campaigning for a change in the law. But more than that, I think it's creating a very genuine platform for voices, for those people who want to see the law change. And we know that there are very, very vocal opponents to this law. And while they are in the minority, they are very vocal. They are very well organised. They are very well funded. And Go Gentle provides a platform for the 75% of people that genuinely want to see this law change and want to see an additional choice at the end of life. So you've mentioned 75%. Can you explain some of the evidence that was released in the Victorian Parliament's 2016 inquiry into end-of-life choices? Yes, certainly. There's been almost two years now of extensive research and consultation. So through the cross-party committee who conducted that inquiry over 10 months, um, something that was quite overwhelmingly clear through their consultation and research is that even with the world-class palliative care that exists in this country, for some people their pain and suffering at the end of life simply cannot be alleviated. Palliative Care Australia openly admit that themselves, that somewhere between 4 to 5% of the population at the end stages of their life, they are just beyond the reaches of the palliative care system and what they can do to alleviate that pain and suffering. Um, another is really that there are an enormous number of people in Victoria, there's one Victorian per week, ending their lives because that is their legal option under the current framework. So you've got people who are terminally ill they are at the end stages of their life and while they still have capacity and while they're still able to make that choice and end their life at a time and of their it's not really a time of their choosing many would be doing it earlier than they would if they had access to safe a safe piece of legislation that would give them the time with their families and that they would have far more control over the time and manner of their deaths. 
That is one of the most compelling stories that I've seen on your website. And and I know too, um, having met with families, that I've done services for, for people who have actually chosen to stop eating and drinking because that has been their only option at the end of their life. And that's been awful for their families to watch that. How important are the personal stories in this campaign? They are absolutely fundamental to everything that the campaign is doing i think certainly andrew's vast work leading up to this it was a it was a the number of people as i say i mean i just think they're incredibly brave and courageous to have shared what are tragic stories of pain and suffering witnessing your loved one being tormented when really they should have access to that additional choice to be supported by medical professionals in a safe manner in a controlled way and the one thing that we're very, very clear about and that we can't emphasise enough is this is a voluntary assisted dying law. It is completely voluntary for everybody involved. In the coming weeks, um, well, maybe it'll take a little bit longer, Victorians will have an outcome to the debate on voluntary assisted dying. Like any debate on a highly charged topic, it's important to recognise the moral claims that are underpinned by personal values and the factual claims checking out where the evidence is based. I know many of you will watch things unfold with interest. Please check out our Facebook page for links to the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill discussion paper, um, the letter from the 101 oncologists, and also Go Gentle. They're all great resources to help you understand what is a very complex conversation. So, Gina, having covered a really important and difficult topic, uh, our next episode, we are going to lighten things up a little bit (laughs) as we ask the question, death, why so afraid? Um, And we're going to hear some really interesting answers from a palliative care doctor, a death doula, and the CEO of one of Melbourne's largest palliative care services. So, if you're dying to know, join us on Joy 94.9, where we are dying to tell. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.